what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. One thing to know about me is that I like to go fast. When I was a kid, I'd rather finish my homework or even a test in record time than make sure I got everything right. Now, this was rarely an issue. My mom and my teachers would merely express frustration and suggest that I just go a little slower so I didn't make any mistakes. And you know, I tell my own daughter the same thing now. Anyhow, no one really cared if I got an A instead of an A+, because I just wanted to be done with the thing. But as time went on and my actions grew to have more consequences than a few silly mistakes, it became a problem. Today, moving too fast means disappointing customers, making costly errors, causing others to pick up my slack, or missing key opportunities. And while I'm by no means perfect on this front, I've made a lot of progress on slowing down and operating with more patience. And I feel really, really good about it. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today, I want to return to a piece that I wrote in December 2021, but didn't share here on the podcast. I've edited and updated it, both things I couldn't do or wouldn't do before I learned the satisfaction of patience. And seeing as I'm sharing this as the first episode of 2023, I think you'll find it especially relevant as you head back to work and consider how to approach this new year. Before we get to that, though, I want to tell you about a workshop I'm running this month called Work in Practice. If one of your commitments for 2023 is to embrace more sustainable, satisfying ways of working, this workshop is for you. You've seen the books and the quote grams that urge you to rest to take things slow, to reclaim your time. And I am here for all of it. But I also know that many people struggle to turn these values into daily reality. Maybe you end up calling yourself lazy, or you push past your limits in the name of productivity. The old ways of work have a hold on us. We need to dismantle them and rebuild a new approach to work in their place. That's Work in Practice. Work in Practice is not a productivity system. It's a new vision for work. This workshop is designed for independent workers, small business owners, and creatives. Work in Practice is interactive. You'll explore your own work in practice style in each session with reflection and exercises, plus plenty of time for questions. Work in Practice is a three-part workshop with sessions on January 10th, 17th, and 24th. Learn more about Work in Practice at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life.
My weekends revolve around baking. Well, baking and running. So really, my weekends revolve around patience. Neither baking nor running has room for urgency. Try to bake too fast, and not only are you guaranteed to forget a critical ingredient like salt or yeast, but you'll end up with a messy kitchen and a misshapen final product. And while running with patience might seem like an oxymoron, I found patience really is the key. If I try to run too fast or skip incremental increases in mileage, I either won't be able to finish my run or I'll end up injured. Now, I started running before I started baking in earnest. In fact, I think that learning the ins and outs of training as a runner opened the door to baking for me. Baking had never been my thing before. It felt too rigid, too easily screwed up. I like to cook by feel, by taste, by approximation, but not to bake. Yet as I've gotten better about doing things with care and patience, the world of baking became less hostile and more welcoming. I was able to worry less about screwing things up and enjoy the process of gathering and weighing ingredients, waiting for them to come together, and embracing the long periods of rest that so often accompany a recipe for bread or pastry. For me, baking is a practice. While I certainly love to eat what I've baked, I find that I actually enjoy the practice of baking much more than the consumption of my baked goods. And luckily, there are plenty of people I can share the product of my labor with. The philosopher Kiran Sataya divides our activities into two categories, telic and atelic. Telic activities are those that we do for their end product. The purpose of telic activities is to get to the end. But atelic activities are those we do to do them. The purpose of atelic activities is to realize the value in the process of doing them. Now in my book, I give these two types of activities a bit more conventional names. I call them practice and achievement. Telic activities are focused on achievement, be it mundane, utilitarian, or extraordinary. And baking can easily be a telic activity. For instance, I have many fond memories of eating the circular bread loaves that my mother's mid-90s bread machine churned out. She'd add the ingredients to the machine in the morning, program it, and just as my brother and I were coming home from school, the machine would produce a nice, warm, fresh loaf of bread. Bread machines are a fantastic way to take the work out of baking bread, and they're a lovely way to ensure that time or attention 
never stands between you and a piece of fresh, warm goodness. But what I value about baking, especially baking bread, is the process. I don't want to take the work out of baking. I want to revel in as much delightful challenge from the work of baking as possible. And that's what makes it an atelic activity for me. It's focused on practice. In my book, I define the purpose of practice as awareness and groundedness, not improvement, and certainly not perfection. Meditation teacher Sebene Selassie writes that with practice, we begin to distinguish clearly between what we think is happening and what's actually occurring, and meet everything with kindness. Each time I go to bake a loaf of bread, I need to shed any preconceived notion of what is happening and stay present to what the dough is actually doing. I might notice that today's dough requires a longer kneading time because the gluten just doesn't seem to be developing very quickly. Or maybe I notice the hydration is off and I bring it back into balance with a little water or flour. Even if I've made a recipe 10 or 20 times, I need to pay attention each time I make it because a recipe isn't an algorithm. It's a system. It's a system that connects to the humidity in the air, the temperature of the kitchen, and the force I knead it with. And a bread recipe is a system that has a completely fluid relationship with time. At the low end, making a loaf of bread probably takes about three hours. But plenty of bread is best made overnight. That means a loaf of bread can take 16 hours or more. And the time it takes bread dough to rise is kind of a funny thing. The recipe will always give a range, say 90 minutes to two hours. But so many different factors impact the way yeast does its job. For instance, our house is pretty cool in the winter. That's how we like it. So my dough will rise, but it typically does so much more slowly than the recipe suggests it will. If I just automatically skipped to the next step after 90 minutes, I'd probably underproof my bread every time. Instead, I need to pay attention to how it's reacting on that day at that temperature, with that recipe, and at this humidity? What is it supposed to look like or feel like when it's ready for the next step? Is it there yet? How about now? At the same time, it is completely possible to overdo it, too. If I leave my dough unattended and it rises beyond where it should, I might overproof it and it'll end up pretty sad-looking after I bake it. Now, there are plenty of ways that a loaf of bread can go wrong, and most of them are preventable if I'm paying attention. As Semine points out, not only do I need to pay attention, 
but I also need to be kind. It doesn't help at all if I get ticked off or frustrated because my dough isn't doing what I think it's supposed to be doing. Nor does it help if I start unkindly blaming myself. The kind way to respond is with curiosity. Why is this happening? What could I do to try to fix it? Writing of meditation as practice, Sebede explains that meditation helps us identify and unwind our conditioned fear, anxiety, and reactivity. And that's what baking does for me, too. As I identify and unwind my fear, anxiety, and reactivity, patterns I've internalized over a lifetime, I'm able to let go of urgency. I am more patient. I feel better about going slow. Baking allows me not only to practice, but to find enjoyment in these ways of being. To find satisfaction and pleasure in kneading the bread long enough so that it window panes. Or baking the bread long enough to produce that lovely hollow sound when I knock on the bottom of it. The practice of baking gives me a way to experience time differently. Instead of ruminating on the past or future, watching the clock, or marveling at how quickly the last year went by, baking tethers me to the experience of time as present. Each minute that passes is felt as gluten developing in my hands or observed as yeast producing tiny bubbles of gas. I am present as I sit reading on the couch in between steps or folding the laundry while the air is perfumed by what's happening in the oven. Time becomes embodied and sensory. Modernity made time disembodied. The clock synced our lives to a machine rather than the sun or the seasons. Time became utilitarian rather than experiential. Time became something we could sell for an hourly wage or project fee. And with every advance in time-telling precision, we became further and further detached from our visceral, sensory experience of time. Time, in a very real way, has gotten away from us. It seems that as our internalization of clock time becomes more complete, we become profoundly separated from time as represented by our bodies and the natural world. You might think, what's the harm? Perhaps this is an adaptation to the built world that is productive, even evolutionary. But I think we have to ask ourselves whether that adaptation really serves us or whether it serves existing systems of harm and exploitation. 
or as L.M. Sacassus put it, quote, in innumerable ways, we bend ourselves to fit the pattern of a techno-economic order that exists for its own sake and not for ours. We created clocks to use as tools, and now the tool uses us. urgency of clock time shapes our societies. It complicates our creativity. It disconnects us from our most precious values and relationships. Urgency doesn't only exist at the borders of our attention, the emergencies, the sparks of imagination, the rush jobs. No, urgency is woven into the fabric of how we structure work and life. If things feel especially urgent to you right now, you are not alone. Maybe you've been daydreaming about several work projects and now it feels like you have to do them all right now. Or maybe two weeks ago, it felt like you had plenty of time before that next deadline. But now that deadline is here and it's urgent. Or maybe it's the attitude your client or employer is bringing into your work. It can feel like life and work will never be anything other than urgent. And while I'd like to be able to wave my magic spatula and remove that sense of urgency for you, I can't. Many of us face legitimate urgency. Bills need to be paid. Deadlines need to be met. Kids need to be cared for. But maybe, just maybe, there's a way for you to practice letting go of urgency. Maybe there's a way for you to practice experiencing time in a way that doesn't have to be packed with value, usefulness, or even meaning. Baking reminds me that it doesn't matter whether the clock says it's been an hour or two. If the dough hasn't doubled, it's not time for the next step. The dough doesn't care what other activities I'd hoped to accomplish that day. It doesn't care that I've allotted a certain amount of clock time to the task of baking. The dough is on bread time. And as the baker, so am I. The same is true of any of my professional endeavors. While there is certainly a need for synchronicity and due dates, most of my work happens outside of preset timeframes. The longer I've been in business, the more apparent it is just how slowly things move. The longer I've been alive, the more apparent it is that things take their own time. There 
is little sense in me trying to predict or control how long something's going to take. Yeast produces the gas that makes the dough rise at a pace dependent on outside circumstances. Sometimes a 10,000-word essay takes less time than a 2,000-word article. Good decisions can get made in an instant, while bad decisions can be analyzed, researched, and carefully considered for months. So what happens if we start to let go of presuppositions about time altogether? What other markers of progress, growth, or experience can we measure? What happens if we let go of measuring altogether? How does measuring or not measuring the use of our time transform what we believe to be valuable? Benjamin Franklin said, time is money. But what else could time be? What if time were practice, connection, care, love? How does redefining time outside of a financial equation change our perception of it? How does it change the way we plan or our expectations of how time is spent? We create so much heartache with the way we expect our projects or goals to unfold in time. Might even feel shame when we don't accomplish everything others accomplish in the same time frame. Our expectations create urgency, and urgency distorts our desire, so that we often take action that is harmful to ourselves and others. With a few important exceptions, urgency just doesn't need to be a variable in most projects or decisions. If I bring urgency to kneading a loaf of bread or letting the dough rise, I accomplish nothing more than if I bring patience and attentiveness. In fact, there's a good chance that my urgency will cause me to produce something inedible. At that point, my time isn't money, it's not even food. Urgency robs me of both the pleasure of the process and the result of my diligence. We might think of urgency as a habit of mind. It's part of our modern modus operandi. We've learned to cram as much as we can into shorter and shorter periods of time. The whole productivity industry is based on this capitalism-inspired desire. To break the habit, we not only have to practice doing things differently, but re-examine the stories and assumptions that have formed the habit. Time is money is one of those stories. Assuming that there is always a problem to be fixed is another. Still another might be tying productivity to a sense of self-worth or even identity. Now is better than later. Faster is better than slower. 
Our culture is teeming with stories about urgency, time, and productivity. What would happen if we start to let them go? Can we start to recognize that plans, projects, ideas, opportunities, and problems unfold on their own time? Could we learn that slow and indeterminate, rather than urgent, is the natural state of things? What expectations would we need to let go of as we do? Indigenous cultures and economies are not based on clock time, but instead the time of bodies, seasons, plants, and animals. Time is sensual. Urgency isn't a natural state for the body. The way I feel urgency is an unpleasant sensation. Urgency feels more like anxiety than it feels like pleasure. Urgency doesn't belong in my body, just like it doesn't belong in my bread. I watch and poke the dough to know when it's time to move on with my recipe. If part of the project is letting go of urgency and even our expectations around how long something should take, then the other part of the project might be discerning the cues we can use to know when to move on or to take the next step. As we unlearn embodied urgency, can we relearn what readiness feels like, what it looks like, tastes like, sounds like? At this time of year, I not only think about my plans for the next year, what I've learned about the process of planning over the past year. This year, after experimenting with different ways to use my time, I'm noticing how much I've practiced letting things marinate, or maybe ferment is the better word, and how much more comfortable waiting has become. And I like that. I didn't plan to spend most of this year away from business as usual, but I discovered that was what I needed. And even as this new year begins and I'm dipping my toes back into teaching and speaking, I plan to be patient, never giving in to false urgency. I'll trust that just as the yeast is doing its thing to help me produce a loaf of bread, The way I spend my time today and tomorrow is doing its thing to help me produce remarkable and sustainable work.